Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a writer for Atlantic Magazine. He's also the author of numerous books, including Kindly Inquisitors, Denial, Gay Marriage, Political Realism, The Happiness Curve, and his most recent book, which we are discussing today, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. I'm happy to be with you, Chris. So I first learned of your work uh, through somebody recommended Kindly Inquisitors, and I read and loved that book. Uh, And it strikes me right off the bat that it has a lot in common with this book. So first, I wanted to ask you, what briefly is Kindly Inquisitors about? And how does this book differ or or expand on that project? Boy, I'm halfway tempted to ask you to summarize Kindly Inquisitors for me so I can understand what you got out of it. Uh, (laughs) Kindly Inquisitors was written in 1993. When did you read it, by the way? Just curious. I read it maybe two years ago. Two years ago. So but I you, keep... you you did a rather significant update to it since 93. I mean, there were references well, I, in there, right? That No, no. It's I, I added an afterword in 2003 for a, no, 2013 for a 20th anniversary edition. But, but the one thing that I keep hearing about that book, it, it really took off, you know, in the Trump era. But it was published what, 29 years ago now, and people kept saying, this book is prescient. This book could have been written yesterday. And I'm like, well, where were you the last 30 years? (laughs) (laughs) It's not prescient. It's that you could see a lot of the trends that are unfolding today. We're we're already beginning back there, and we're, we're already out in the open. So Kindly Inquisitors was a book about our greatest social system, our greatest human technology, the technology that has transformed our ability as a species so that we can operate orders of magnitude above our design capacity. And that's what I called in that book, liberal science. And that's our social system for creating knowledge. Liberal science is not a great term because, uh, but I was looking for something that's kind of about the scientific method and kind of, it's gotta be about liberalism, liberal systems like markets and democracies. And science are disaggregated, decentralized, a lot of people working in cooperation, but without central coordination. And it needed to be about science because so much of the system is about, you know, empiricism and fallibilism. But I needed a term that was more than just about bench science, you know, physics and chemistry, because it needs to include journalism, for example, and social sciences and ethics and everything like that. Everything people debate in an organized, empirical, truth-seeking fashion. So I came up with liberal science. So it's a book about that and what that is and where knowledge comes from. And it's a book about, at that point, almost 30 years ago, three big threats to that system, which I called fundamentalists. That's from people who think they know the truth and don't need to bother with the process. And what I call the egalitarian threat, which are people predominantly on the left who believe that all ideas are created equally, but those of oppressed minorities are more equal than others. And what I call the humanitarian threat, and that's the idea of words that wound, that speech that speech that's harmful should not be allowed. It's a human rights violation. And I argued all those, all three of those things are devastating to the critical open process that we rely on to make knowledge. 
and argued fiercely against them. And that was Kindly Inquisitors, 1993. And so this book definitely covers some of that ground. At a broad overview, my sense of Kindly Inquisitors was that it's fairly bipartisan in its criticism. You you identify and critique threats to free inquiry and liberal science that come from the left and that come from the right. My memory is that there were more criticisms of the left-wing threats and kindly inquisitors. And this seems like the reverse, maybe, maybe uh fittingly so, you know, after Trump, you you definitely criticize you still criticize left-wing threats to open inquiry, but it feels like more there's more criticism of the right-wing threat. You want to say something about that shift, or do you think I have that right? You 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 kind of got that right. Uh, we should probably talk for a minute about how this book builds on the last one. If it's not putting the cart before the horse, this this book focuses on the post-truth left and the post-truth right. And they're both doing different kinds of things, and they're both doing worrisome things. In fact, this book was 95% written and set before January 6th, 2020. And had I known what would unfold with Stop the Steal and the massive disinformation campaign that Trump and MAGA have been running now since the election to persuade people that it was stolen, I would have had more on the book than I do about the right, because I think the right is significantly the, the bigger threat to knowledge and truth right now, because it it's a major faction in a major political party. And its major proponent is still the leading candidate for president in that party. So like you said before, let's back up and say a little bit more about how this book builds on Kindly Inquisitors and what what differences, if any, you know, you emphasize in the constitution of knowledge. So in Kindly Inquisitors, the notion that I use, which which is still a very good notion, um, I still completely believe in it, but it's kind of a variant of the marketplace of ideas. It's about where knowledge comes from. And a very good answer to that was proposed by a philosopher named Karl Popper in the mid 20th century, philosopher of science, who said, well, what happens is we can never be sure if we're right but we can often be sure if we're wrong, we can disprove a hypothesis. So what science does, the way we learn socially is people propose ideas and hypotheses, and then they defend them. And then other people try to find mistakes. So the critical thing about this system is we're not looking for truth, we're looking for error. And what survives at the any, at the end of any given day is, is our knowledge, but everything might be in principle fallible. And that's a very good model. Uh, it's kind of a marketplace of ideas model. It's an evolutionary model. It, you know, you imagine lots of criticism of lots of ideas. What I realized in the Trump era is that I had left out a huge part of the system and what's really a critical part of the system. The idea of the marketplace of ideas is somehow you just put all this information out there and somehow everyone criticizes and talks about it, and somehow truth emerges. The problem is, what's the somehow? An undergraduate will, will ask you, if you ever suggest the marketplace of ideas, well, how do you know that better ideas will win in the marketplace of ideas? And what we started seeing in 2016 was the systematic weaponizing, corrupting, and distorting of the marketplace of ideas by actors that included Russian propagandists, Trump and his MAGA movement. Trump lied about 20 times a day. We've never seen that kind of disinformation coming from a major political figure and also from the left. 
which was doing all kinds of gaslighting around issues that are sensitive and you know in, in academia. And what I realized is that what all these forces were attacking was the specific institutions and arrangements and norms and rules that we rely on to structure the marketplace of ideas. And then I realized that, you know, America tried having just a declaration of independence and then a lot of different actors. We called it the Articles of Confederation. It almost immediately devolved into near anarchy. James Madison comes along and says, no, you need a constitution. You need a structure with carefully defined powers and balances. You need to force people to compromise even when they're not inclined to. And you do that by creating structures so that no one party's in control and they have to work with each other, counterbalance each other. And then I realized the same is true in the world of knowledge. Science, liberal science, is not self-structuring. It is not automatic. In fact, it relies on structures that have been created over the past 300 years. Everything from edited journals, credentialing organizations, research organizations, peer review, editorial processes at places like newspapers, the people who set rules for courts and law, the bar associations, the law schools that teach it, all of that's part of this whole process of adversarial learning. You need all of that structure. And then you need to defend that structure and the rules that lie behind them. So what are those rules? That's the constitution of knowledge. Constitution of knowledge is not like the meta like the marketplace of ideas. It's, it's not a metaphor or a simile or a figure of speech or a literary device. There, there actually is a constitution of knowledge. It doesn't happen to be written down, but it is rules and institutions that if you went to graduate school or undergraduate school, you were trained in. That if you're a teacher, you're a teaching. If you're a scientist or a journalist or a lawyer or a doctor, um, you are practicing those rules. They're things like don't make stuff up. Make sure your experiment is repeatable. Make sure your argument is something that anybody can bring a perspective to and look at and examine, regardless of who they are. Remember that you could always be wrong. No one gets to be immune to error. Those are the things that make our knowledge-seeking system work and that moor our society, anchor our society to reality. Without them, we're in QAnon land, and that's where we're winding up. A little while back, you used a phrase that I learned from you in Kindly Inquisitors and have come, come to like a lot. Can you describe what fallibilism is and what it is and how, how it differs from general skepticism or postmodern influenced uh, ideas about knowledge? Yeah, fallibilism is kind of a, a revolutionary idea. This is such a potted history of, of philosophy of knowledge that uh, you, you may laugh at me and I wouldn't blame you, but but it's a podcast, so here goes. Make it potted. <laughs> so for most of human history, the way we got knowledge was from our tribes and the revelations of people in our group. And that didn't work very well because we made a lot of mistakes. Those mistakes tended to be enshrined in group beliefs like religions, um, superstitions, myths that became holy. Then someone would split off saying, no, that's not true. This is true. And then we'd have schisms and then we'd have wars. Um, and we didn't really learn very much as a species for our first 200,000 years. Along come some people in the 1500s, 1600s, they're called skeptics. And they say, well, we can't really know anything because nothing is ever certain. 
you can be wrong about really anything. You could be a brain in a vat. The whole world could be an illusion. And that was a radical and upsetting idea for people. And it seemed to lead to a dead end, but it didn't because it was succeeded by another idea, which is fallibilism, which becomes the basis for the scientific process. And fallibilism is, no, we can't be certain that we've ever reached final absolute truth forever. But we can be certain that we've made mistakes. So suppose I see, I've, I've never seen cats before, and I see six black cats. Well, I'm going to say all cats are black. The first time I see a white cat, I now know it is not the case that all cats are black. Fallibilism says, so wait a minute, what if instead of basing knowledge on things that you are absolutely certain are true, which is how religion did it and how mythology and tribalism and cultism did it, what if instead you base knowledge on the idea of doubt, that knowledge are the things that you doubt, but that withstand the process of critical scrutiny over time? So they don't have to be absolutely true, but they can be and are our closest approximation to truth today. Well, once you do that, you do a couple things that are revolutionary. The first is you set up an open-ended conversation because no one's in a position to say, I'm right, you're wrong, that's the end of it. And by the way, if you continue to say the things you're saying, I'll have to kill you. No one can do that anymore because anybody might be wrong. Revolutionary social concept gets rid of the idea that princes and priests and oracles can just dictate the truth. The second thing it sets up is, well, if we're all looking for error, anyone can do that. So it creates the premise for a global network of people organized into a gigantic social network of people looking for each other's mistakes. We're all fundamentally inherently biased. We cannot get around that. We we may try, but I cannot see my biases. You cannot see yours, but I can often see yours and you can often see mine. So if you and I and millions of millions of other people are put together in a network to search for each other's errors so that you can float a hypothesis and I can look at it a day later and say, well, that's not quite right. But maybe if he added this premise, it would be right. And someone else says, no, you're both wrong and so on. This error-seeking mechanism becomes a gigantic social network that can link together hundreds of millions of minds all over the planet looking for knowledge. And that gives us a system which allows us, for example, to use researchers in countries around the world to map the genome of a deadly new virus over the course of a weekend. This is an unprecedented technology in human affairs. It's only a few hundred years old. It has, as I said earlier, transformed us as a species so that collectively we know far more and can process far more and develop knowledge far faster than any one individual or tribe could ever have done. So infallibilism is sort of this, the, the key at the, at the very heart of it. Fallibilism seems to me compatible with the idea that there is absolute truth or that something might be absolutely true. It's just that you have to acknowledge that you could be wrong. Like, for instance, Correct. I believe that certain like mathematical truths or, or logical truths are absolutely true. I believe that, you know, one plus one equals two and that that is absolutely true. On some really obscure level, I also believe that even on that, it's possible that I could be mistaken in some way. I don't can't even grasp or explain to you how I could be mistaken. But 
I also believe it's absolutely true that you're sitting in this room and I'm speaking with you. But on that, I also very much believe that I could be mistaken. And I think sometimes people who get really uh, deep into skepticism or certain postmodern ideas about about knowledge, I feel like they what they want to be objecting to is dogmatic certainty. And it comes off as an objection to the idea that there can be truth at all. And fallibilism seems like a really nice escape hatch for the the itch to rebel against dogmatic certainty, but also still maintain the possibility of factual truth claims. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's beautifully put. Now, we should say that the rules of logic and math are kind of a separate category from empirical rules because they structure our thinking to begin with. I, I once wrote a joking article in which I posited the, the existence of an institute for empirical arithmetic, where they tested the proposition that 80 plus 40 equals 120 by counting again and again and again, in hopes that eventually one of those times it wouldn't. And of course, this is a joke because we structured these things into our logic. But your your broader point is, is exactly right. Fallibilism's attitude toward truth, I think it was best stated by Karl Popper, who said, we should think of truth not as a destination, but as a regulative principle like north or up. It's the direction in which we are headed. We can't ever be sure of reaching it finally, but we can reach Certain propositions that are so well validated, so often from so many different conciliant directions over time, that they become foundational in our knowledge network. Now, now once in a while, even those can shift. Einstein did that with relativity. But this allows us to build a body of knowledge that we don't have to test from scratch every day. We don't wake up in the morning thinking everything we know is probably false. We wake up in the morning with a body of knowledge that has withstood testing again and again, so we're able to build more layers on top of that. And yeah, that's fallibilism. The direction is truth. How do you structure a system that threads that needle between allowing certain well-replicated and, and well-established truths to remain and to have that kind of built-in conservatism where you're not where you're not reinventing the epistemic wheel every morning, but also still allows for challenge and argument? It's a great question. And one of the fantastic things about liberal science, the constitution of knowledge, you could ask the same kind of question about the United States constitution. It has to balance things first. It has to have constant change, constant correction, constant elections. Yet it also needs to have a substrate of institutions, norms, laws, and values that stay with us. Those are very hard things to balance. And the reason Madison, the chief framer of the Constitution, is such a genius is that he reaches a radical political con conclusion, which still boggles my mind. He says, you've got this problem. The problem is ambition. People want to get ahead in life. They want to get in ahead in politics, and they will abuse whatever power they have in order to do it. And they will escape almost any law or box that you try to put them in. Madison says, so what do you do about that? He says, there's only one force that's strong enough to contain ambition. And Chris, what is it? Other ambition? It is other ambition. As he says, and I think Federalist 10, ambition needs to counteract ambition. And that's how the constitution is set up. And his genius is to recognize that this system can be both dynamic and stable. 
because it is using, it is harnessing ambition to force people to compromise with each other in order to get stuff done. So you're getting constant change and churn as new ideas and players come into the system and try to exert their will, but also constant restraint because no one's in a position to overturn the whole thing. The key is you do have, have to have some agreement on the basic rules. This is why MAGA and Stop the Steal are so dangerous. They're trying to overturn the basic rules and say they won the election even though they didn't. So, okay, take that over to the constitution of knowledge. It works in a similar way. On the one hand, you incentivize people to always ask questions of established belief because one way to get famous is if you're the person who comes along and overturns the big previous theory. Now, there are lots of fun examples of that that, that I can cite. You know, The classic is the guy who, who figured out that ulcers were not caused by stress, but were caused by bacteria and proved it and you know, change medical science. These are the people who get prizes and footnotes and big, big professorships. So there's, there's always this incentive to correct. At the same time, you also have a strong incentive to be right. You, you want your ideas to last. You want them to hold up. So you also have strong incentives to defend your ideas, to come back at the person who says you're wrong and say, no, you're wrong, and then have that conversation. So by pitting these forces against each other, you get the dynamic process of science that allows constant challenge yet constant stability. And it, you know, when I put it that abstractly, it's a little bit hard to envision. But this is what I'm doing as a journalist and writer. When I question someone what someone else is saying and say the evidence actually goes in the other direction. And that's that's how you strike that balance. So you're talking about this process of mutual checking and mutual, you know, conversation and criticism, uh, establishing public knowledge. At various times in the book, you sort of claim that, uh, you know, knowledge isn't what I know or you know, it's what we know. It's it's kind of a public thing. So this is brings me to a question I was kind of having throughout the book. Can you make a distinction here between like a, a fundamental, like philosophical epistemic claim about what can be known in principle versus this more practical claim of what we have good reason to regard as publicly available knowledge or what we can all what we can all focus on. Does that question make sense? Like, is it possible for me to know something even if it's not public knowledge in your view, but rather so, it's just yeah, not practical? So knowledge is a word that's used in a lot of different ways. And I'm using it in a very specific way to mean what epistemologists, philosophers of knowledge call objective knowledge. And objective knowledge is different from, I don't know, dream knowledge or storytelling um, or mythology and all the, you know, the kinds of instinctive things that we live with that present themselves in our everyday world. Objective knowledge is the category of things that we think are true for everybody and that we think would be true if everyone could look at them and test them, as we can do. Objective knowledge is the kind of universal knowledge that's propositional. We can write it down in books, and we can say this has been established until someone shows otherwise. And yeah, objective knowledge always comes from society. Even in principle, a person who lives in an isolated world on a desert island with no human contact I don't know, that person might have a lot of shaggy brown hair and be writing a lot of equations. That person may be Einstein inventing a theory of relativity, but it could also be a madman writing random equations. 
And even in principle, there is no way to know that until other humans can look at that work and evaluate it distinctly. So objective knowledge, yeah, it, it comes from this public process through the constitution of knowledge. And one of the things you emphasize in, in the constitution of knowledge is the role of institutions. And, and you coin this phrase that, well, I don't know if you coined it, but you use the phrase reality-based community throughout the novel. I don't know why I just called it a novel. <laughs> the book. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that phrase actually derives from Karl Rove. So I'm <laughs> misappropriating it. Okay, perfect. So so who's in the reality-based community or what what specific institutions and what kinds of institutions? You, you go so back the, and forth between giving general answers and specific answers to that question. So maybe you can do that so here. So the, the, the big four, there are lots. You know, there's like consultancies and libraries and museums are all in there. But, but the big four... Number one, science, research, academia, and all of the institutions that go go with that. That's everything from universities to NIH, think tanks like Brookings, which I'm associated with, um, the credentialing and standard setting organizations like, um, I don't know, the American Economic Association, all of that stuff um, that are advancing knowledge and doing research on a daily basis. The second big category, which is often overlooked, but equally important, is law. So the idea of a fact, it turns out, originates not in science. It predates the scientific revolution. It comes from medieval law courts, because you couldn't render a judgment if you couldn't get an account of the facts, like who had the cow, who shot the cow. So facts were developed through this adversarial process of presenting evidence to a judge and then and then trying it out in court. And today, law and courts remain one of our most critical systems for keeping society moored to reality. This is why it's so critical that when Stop the Steal filed, I think it's 61 lawsuits claiming that the election had been stolen, that courts looked at those things objectively, subjected them to adversarial hearing, and threw them all out because they weren't factual. This is why it's so important that government officials like the attorney general follow the facts and make sure to be objective and know that everything they assert will be tested in court. The third big area is the government, which is related to the law. A government is tyrannical if it can invent its own version of the truth. We know that from George Orwell and Hannah Arendt, and we know that's the first thing totalitarian regimes do under people like Stalin and Hitler is invent alternative realities force you to either believe them or say you believe them. Our government is shot through with organizations, institutions, like the Congressional Research Service, National Institutes of Health, inspectors general in most of the departments of government, Congressional Budget Office, Congressional hearings, on and on and on. It is shot through with institutions that are all about finding facts, doing research, setting standards for research. One of the most sinister things that happened under the Trump presidency was the assault on those institutions, like, for example, the effort to force the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to manipulate the predicted course of a hurricane because the president didn't like the Weather Service prediction. Well, a government that can do that is not only unmoored from reality, it's despotic and dangerous and deadly. The fourth big category, the reality-based community, is journalists. And again, we forget how important this is. 
It took really until just over 100 years ago to develop standards of journalism and institutions of journalism that were fact-based and not just partisan and where they just didn't make stuff up for fun. That's a pretty recent innovation. And that's what distinguishes modern mainstream media, which is reality-based, from a lot of what we see popping up online. Um, you can't really run a society that's well-informed unless you have media that's reality-based. So as a society, if we get those big four right, we're in good shape. When they start to get attacked and undermined as they have been, it's a problem. Now they can fail from without by being attacked and undermined. What are some ways they can fail from within by being, I mean, something that occurred to me is I think you listed like intelligence agencies as being part of that part of that community. And, and in principle, I see a lot of ways yeah. that they can, but the, in addition to being intelligence gathering agencies, like the CIA is also a, a covert action agency with political goals and has some history of like, trying to influence public opinion in favor of like the Vietnam War or US foreign policy or things like that. How does that fit into undermining various elements of the reality-based community? Well, the covert ops side is different from the intelligence gathering side, but your, your general insight is absolutely right, which is that these institutions don't exist in a platonic vacuum. They are full of people and humans are subject to corruption and to double standards and incentives of all kinds. They're subject to political pressures. We have seen this. We saw a massive intelligence failure in 2003, leading to the Iraq War, some of which a lot of people credibly believed was because intelligence agencies felt pressure to come out in a certain direction and did not apply the scrutiny that they should have. There's a lot of criticism now of aspects of the way the press is performed. And for example, understanding the origin of the of the COVID virus. So the reality-based community requires constant inspection from critics on the outside, people who say to journalists, you got the Hunter Biden story wrong. You did the wrong thing with that. And it also requires diversity of viewpoint on the inside. It requires that, for example, newsrooms and academic faculties have enough different points of view so that they can find each other's errors. And a big problem that we're having right now, especially in academia, is there are whole disciplines and universities where there's no one who isn't pretty much on the left in a department or a discipline, which means that all kinds of assumptions are not getting tested, even though they may be false. We're seeing outright discrimination in academia against conservative scholars. You can look high and low and won't find anyone who voted for Trump. We see newsrooms that also don't have enough representation of enough different points of view. And that also leads to a form of institutional corruption. Um, we're not able to do our job if we don't have differences of opinion. See, the, the other great characteristic of the constitution of knowledge is in most systems, diversity of viewpoint is a threat to stability. You don't want people disagreeing because then they'll schism and then you'll have a war. In the constitution of knowledge, disagreement becomes the source, the energy source for finding knowledge. No, you're wrong, I'm right. We're gonna have to have that conversation and that will shed, that will shed light, not just heat. But you've got to have the diversity. Yeah, you talk about one of the, like a student who went through his entire college or undergraduate and graduate career without ever hearing anybody push back on or suggest that there might be an alternative view to the idea that gender is a social construct. And not that that's an indefensible view, but it is just one view. And you can go through an entire uh, graduate 
program without ever hearing anyone challenge it is is surprising. Yeah, and there's you know there's now quite a few of these dogmas. We see them on the on the left in academia. We see them on the right in politics. Um, it's become very hard for political leaders in the Republican Party to say the election wasn't stolen. In 2020, the election was free and fair. Now, people are doing it, but it takes some courage because there's a lot of pressure from stop to steal. And there always will be. Um, we will never have a pristine environment for knowledge. And that's why it's so important to fight for the constitution of knowledge, because it keeps us honest in ways that we cannot individually do on our own behalves. You talk at some points in the book about the differing threats from the right and the left as being simplifying a little bit, like a, a kind of troll epistemology on the right. Again, not completely unique to the right, but more prominent there. And the more familiar kind of cancel culture and falling in line on the left. Do you want to say something about those two threats? Yeah, they're different in terms of their political constituencies, because one is from the right and one is from the left. They're different in some of the methods that they're using. But they are both ultimately trying to do the same thing, which is to spoof and undermine the constitution of knowledge by, by distorting our information environment. So there are a couple ways to do that. One of those is Russian-style mass disinformation that's putting out trolling, conspiracy theories, half-truths, exaggerations, outright falsehoods at such high volumes that people no longer know what's true, what's false, or even how to tell the difference. Um, the media gets so busy refuting the lie from yesterday, and there are five more today. This is a tactic that was never used in American politics until Donald Trump came along in 2016 and put it to work. In the 2016 campaign, PolitiFact ran the numbers of all the fact checks of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. About 25% of Clinton's checkable assertions were false or mostly false. Now, that's too high. We don't like it. But it might be consistent with a politician in the heat of a campaign. 70%, 70% of Trump's checkable assertions were entirely or mostly false. In other words, if the man was making a factual statement, it was probably wrong. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens by effort. This is a guy who sat on the campaign trail. Don't believe the evidence of your eyes. Believe what I tell you. This is a guy whose first two acts as president were to lie about the size of the crowd at his inauguration and to lie about whether it rained. Both very checkable, obvious facts. Why is he doing that? He's asserting his sovereignty over truth. He's saying the same thing Vladimir Putin says, which is, you don't know what's true or false anymore. It's what I say today. And maybe tomorrow I'll say something different. And that'll be. Um, what's true that day. So this is designed to undermine all the standards that we've been talking about for the last half hour that underpin how we go about finding truth, how we decide what is respectable to believe as knowledge and, and what is unproven. It's designed to replace all of that with confusion and cynicism and chaos. A very effective tactic. It's not a new tactic. Never seen it in American politics before. I think that Trump's most destructive legacy is his attack on knowledge and his release into the public square of Russian-style mass disinformation. Okay, that's over there. I'm sorry about the long answer, but there's so oh, much Oh, I like here. your Forgive long me. answers. This, this right, is what well, the people want to hear. Okay. So suppose what you're trying to do is manipulate the environment for political gain 
by creating an atmosphere in which people don't know what to believe. Well, one way to do that's what, what we just talked about, but there's a very different way that's also very effective and time-honored. And that's called creating what are called spirals of silence. In any room full of people, we look to other people in the room to decide what's likely to be true or false. And if everyone else in the room disagrees with me, I'm likely to be more quiet, feel more isolated. I'm likely to doubt that what I thought was actually true. Maybe I should consider what all these other people think. Well, someone did a famous experiment in the early 1950s, since been replicated many times. They put Chris Kaufman in a room with seven other people. They give everyone in the room a piece of paper and it says, here's a line. Which of these other three lines is the same length as the first line? And they make it super obvious. So it's not hard to tell. And then they ask everyone in the room. And the right answer is C. Here's the trick. Seven of the people in that room are actors. And they all give the same wrong answer. B. What does Chris Kaufman do when it's his turn? And six of the people have said complete total certainty. Uh, yeah, it's B. It turns out that a third of the time, despite the evidence of his own eyes, he'll agree with the group. And three quarters of us humans, when we do this in repeated experiments, will disagree with the evidence of our own eyes three quarters of the time. In other words, we'll go with what the crowd says. Okay, so think about this if you're a propagandist and you represent actually a small group of people with extreme views, but you want to intimidate, silence, and manipulate a much larger group of people. Suppose you can create an environment where the majority opinion is afraid to speak out because, for example, they're afraid they'll be investigated by the university or they'll be dragged on social media or they'll have proceedings against them by students, protests, and so forth. They become intimidated. They stop raising their voice. If enough of them do that, you create the illusion that everyone in the room agrees with this very small unrepresentative group. Well, that's what's happened on a lot of American campuses. They've created what are called spirals of silence, where people are silenced because other people feel silenced. And this, in turn, heightens the cycle. This is something that dictatorships have known about and done for many decades. There's nothing new about creating spirals of silence. They can break very quickly when people look around and realize, hey, wait a minute, we're all being spoofed here. Right now, however, thanks to social media, which is very good at ganging up on people who get out of line with orthodoxy, and the weaponization of processes on campus like investigations, spirals of silence have become surprisingly easy to create, and they have allowed roughly 8% of the American population, the activist left, to dominate what we see in Twitter, uh, the intellectual atmosphere in much of college campuses, and increasingly newsrooms and corporate HR departments. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank everybody so much for listening to my show. This has really been a dream come true for me to be able to speak with scholars that I admire and read books every week that I'm always excited to read. This is still a small show, still a new show, still growing, and I appreciate everyone listening so much. If you want to help me grow my show, the simplest thing you can do is to write a review, just a short review, a sentence or two, on Apple Podcasts. 
or just recommend it to a friend. So I'm just reaching out to you to beg you humbly on my knees to please do that. I'm going to try not to bug you too much about it, but here I am bugging you. Anyway, back to the show. What, if anything, is the difference between cancel culture, which fuels some of these silent spirals, and just widespread criticism of bad ideas? You know, the the counter you hear is like, you have no right to be free from consequences of your horrific words, Jonathan. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference because cancel, canceling often takes the form of being critical. And criticism is what we do in a scientific world, right? So I use a diagnostic approach. And I say, if six or seven things are going on, then you're being canceled. Um, the more of them are going on, the more you know. And I, I don't have a good enough short-term memory to list them all. But there's <laughs> stuff like, say Chris has said something I disagree with. Am I saying, Chris, you're probably an okay person, but you got this wrong. Here's a better idea. That's criticism. Am I saying, Chris, I'm going to your boss to get you fired? That's canceling. It's punitive and intent. And suppose now I'm going out and organizing other people to do the same. Suppose I go online, I go on Facebook, I go on Twitter and say, this guy Kaufman is a threat to society. He is a bigot. He's racist. He is making, he's making the environment unsafe. So let's go after him. Once you begin recruiting other people, that's not criticism. In science, you are never allowed to go out and recruit people to try to get someone harmed or fired. You have to go after the ideas, not the person. And then suppose I say, let's do a secondary boycott of Chris Kaufman. Let's not only attack Chris, let's also go after anyone who defends Chris so that we can make Chris radioactive in polite society. Companies will be afraid to hire him. Journals will be afraid to publish him. Um, podcast networks will be afraid to carry him. That's canceling. You never do that in science. You never organize uh, so that people who defend an idea that someone else have are themselves targets. So those are some of the hallmarks. In practice, it's almost always extremely easy to tell whether what we're seeing is criticism of an idea versus the attempt to destroy an individual. Remember, one of the great breakthroughs of fallibilism maybe in some way the greatest, is we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. The standard way for most of human history of getting rid of a wrong idea was to kill the person who had it or exile them or imprison them. Pretty standard, but still standard in Russia, China. Breakthrough of fallibilism in the Constitution of Knowledge has said, no, you can't do that. You kill the hypothesis by debating the hypothesis, but because knowledge comes from error, if we do not have error, we will not have knowledge. So you don't want to create a situation where Chris Kaufman is afraid to say stuff because he might be wrong. You want him to say stuff that might be wrong. And then if he's shot down and his hypothesis doesn't work out, you want him to be rehabilitated. So he'll try again. In fact, he'll try even harder the second time. And if he doesn't get it the second time, maybe he'll get it the third time. And that's how we uh, motivate Chris Kaufman and millions of others like him to find knowledge. Cancel culture is doing the opposite. It's punishing the person instead of the error. So that's the spirit of all of these diagnostic criteria is you are engaging yeah. in, an, in a hostile way with the person rather than with the idea. Even arguments and criticisms of ideas can be hostile, but you can distinguish between engaging with the idea. I, I recall hearing people say things when J.K. Rowling got into a lot of trouble for, for tweeting things that trans activists were objecting to. I remember hearing somebody say, you know, I was kind of okay with it at first until she doubled down and didn't apologize. 
And that indicated to me more of a, a canceling than an engagement attitude. That there was there was never a sense of I want to argue or debate this idea. It was essentially treating it like she bumped into somebody, whether out of malice or accident or something. And the first response should have been an apology. And because it was anything else, it was over. And I don't think that's the attitude you would normally take in a, you know, when you were, if you were actually engaging with an idea. Correct. I mean, you'd, you'd want some to, someone to acknowledge and apologize for, for example, scholarly misconduct, plagiarism, sure. inventing evidence. But you wouldn't expect someone to apologize for, for just being wrong. Especially um, if you know they still don't believe they're wrong. I mean, if you, if you have credible evidence yeah. that they have changed their mind and they just want to not apologize because it's painful. And, and especially if they're right. This is one of the hallmarks of cancel culture that's on my list. It's very usual, even routine, for cancelers not even to read the article or the book or see the movie that they're criticizing. They'll say they don't have to because they already know that it's toxic, wrong, wrong and bigoted, and they don't even want to be exposed to it. So they don't even know what the hypothesis is. And they're nonetheless demanding that it be removed from society. Very often, they'll lie about what it is. They'll simply mischaracterize it. I run into this all the time. Part of being canceled is, well, they didn't read the article. I didn't say anything like that. Doesn't matter. They read the headline. Sometimes they didn't even read the headline. What they're out to do with canceling is not ultimately debate the idea. It's to stifle the debate about the idea. And that means to make it dangerous for anyone to discuss the idea or go anywhere near it. And that's why, for example, in what's sometimes called woke ideology, the terms change all the time. You're never sure what's safe to say, what's unsafe to say, what pronoun to use, what abbreviation to use, what's in, what's out. That's on purpose. They don't want there to be any safe harbor. They don't want you to know what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. They want you to self-police neurotically so that you won't go, for example, anywhere near the subject of, I don't know, affirmative action. You'll stay two neighborhoods away from that. That way they can silence, they can chill the entire debate. That, of course, is the opposite of the ethics of the Constitution and knowledge, which encourages debate as in fact our obligation if we are not confronting ourselves with ideas that are discomforting and sometimes painful which force us back to first first principles and which sometimes seem obnoxious and wrong-headed if, if we're not affirmatively confronting those things we're not doing our job so currently we're in i think what is probably will be looked back on as some kind of dark age of social media social media contributes in a lot of negative ways to harming and undermining the constitution of knowledge, but not universally. I'm a perpetual optimist. I think the world is just begging for some tech entrepreneur genius to solve this problem of how you can make social media both fun and engaging, but also not toxic and prone to all the abuse that's out there and misinformation and stuff. And I, I don't see any reason in principle that's an impossible problem to solve. I also don't see why we should be so optimistic as to expect somebody would have necessarily solved it in the first 15 years of social media's existence. And if it's solved in five or 10 years, we may all look back and laugh at this time in social media's history. And you spend a little bit of time talking about Wikipedia as a, you know, it, not perfect, but something like a social network, a knowledge-based social network that is that does it better than Facebook. Do you, do you, are you aware of any other up-and-coming or interesting 
algorithmic innovations or tech ideas that might help to solve some of the problems that we see in social media? Well, there are tons of ideas, and some of them are, are being tried. Uh, Twitter in the pre-Musk era, for example, was slowing people down, which is important. Our first reaction is often emotional and outrage-based, or we see something funny, we retreat it, not thinking, yeah, maybe that's just false. Uh, and maybe that's dangerously false. You know, maybe we're telling someone that measles vaccine will kill them. So Twitter was slowing people down. It was saying, do you want to read this link before you retweet it? And just making people think for a second, it turns out, will help make better decisions on social media. So there are lots of design choices you can make like that. There are people who talk about, for example, changing the share function so that that's harder to do on, on an impulse. I've argued that there should be a pause before a tweet goes out to the world and you destroy your entire career by saying something stupid. Um, there should be an hour pause before that goes live. And then maybe before it goes live, you should get an email back or a tweet or notice back from, from Twitter saying, you sure you want to post this? So slowing people down, lots of design choices like that are being discussed. I think we've been making progress on this front, actually. It's, it's not easy. It's a wicked hard problem. But Facebook has been doing some really interesting things and with some success to reduce the penetration of disinformation not by censoring, not by removing it entirely, but by disamplifying it, just by putting it lower in the feed. So if something has been fact-checked and shown to be true, it'll tend to be higher in the feed. And they also did something I think was very interesting uh, and, and promising, which is create an oversight board to begin creating transparently in a systematic way some standards for what should and shouldn't be promoted on Facebook. And and how that ought to work. And if you think about it, we have had epistemic crises in the past where people didn't know what to believe and were being manipulated. The printing press was one of them. American media in the, in the 19th century was another. And the way we get out of these historically is by creating structures and standards so that people begin to know what to expect, how to behave. There's a certain amount of curation and professionalism that's involved in all of these things. And I think that's what we were starting to see emerge from, from Facebook. I think Twitter was doing some good work. Lots of them are. Google, which is not really discussed in this department, but should be. Search engine of choice has decisions to make about what goes high and low in the feed. And they have a program going on which, tend, which promotes more highly material that's been fact-checked or which shows you in a side panel the provenance of a news piece so you can judge, is this a good source or not? Those things aren't particularly controversial because they rely on giving us more more information, giving us more context. They're nudges, not outright bans. So I think I think there's been significant progress. The thing is, we, we shouldn't think of this as a done deal, that you reach a point where you're finished. The constitution of knowledge has been under attack since it was formed, since the Inquisition put Galileo Galilei into house arrest. Um, it will always have antagonists and enemies for all kinds of reasons. It stands in the way of demagogues and tyrants who want to create their reality. It stands away in the way of manipulators who want to create spirals of silence to magnify their own influence. It stands in the way of sociopaths and nihilists who just want to say whatever they want to say without having any consequences. Um, for that reason, people will constantly be coming up with ways to challenge it. And the answer to that is to understand the constitution of knowledge, to continually upgrade our defenses of it. What on a political level rather than a socio-cultural level do you think are 
broadly a set of ideal policies to facilitate the constitution of knowledge as you're describing it. I feel like we've been talking about, you know, cultural norms and and these kinds of things, which are very important. Um, but on a political level, uh, what so kind of policies do you would you recommend here? At the political, the most important change is not a policy change. It's a political change. Voters need to more consistently punish politicians who brazenly lie, for example, about the election. They need to show that they won't tolerate that kind of behavior, because if voters won't show that, if they're in fact willing to vote for people who say outlandish things, then that's an incentive to do more of that. We see an interesting instance of this right now with the George Santos scandal. This is a guy who lied about everything. He apparently is a sociopathic liar. It's very important that people like that be blocked from office. So I preach all the time. We need to take truth as a value very seriously when we evaluate candidates and decide how to vote. And when we evaluate, for example, political parties, that's one part of a political answer. Another part is that we will never live in a country where everyone agrees on facts. And we don't even want to because disagreement is where knowledge comes from. It's the motor that that drives us as we search for error. But we do need to have some core institutions that bring us together for orderly conversations about facts. And we do need to have government institutions that are anchored to reality. So it is very important to defend the integrity of the courts, which have done a stand-up job, I think, actually, over the last five years. Defend the integrity of inspectors general, who are the people who are doing fact-finding throughout the government to see where misconduct might have been occurred. And, And there, Chris, I have very good news for you. Congress just quietly passed a bill that makes it harder for a politicized president to fire inspectors general, which is something that Trump got busy doing. It's going to be harder to do that in the future. You need to try to do your best to insulate federal and state agencies from fakery, from quackery, from political influence that tries to change how they go about doing science. So you need to have all those institutional defenses throughout government. But but to reiterate what I said at the beginning, the institutions are important, but you also need help from the voters. I recently interviewed Paul Sherman, who is a lawyer for the Institute for Justice, and he does a lot of work on occupational speech. And this is this is an issue that was occurring to me reading your book that I could see cutting in in both directions from your viewpoint. So I wondered what you what you think. On the one hand, occupational licensure restricts who can use certain kinds of speech in speaking professions, like being a therapist or a lawyer um, or get, giving medical advice or something, and upholds certain kinds of professional standards. But on the other hand, it, it's also restricting people with the force of law. Um, I prefer professional organizations and professional standards rather than legal ones. But I I wonder if you have any thoughts about using the force of law for professional licensure to restrict speaking professions. Well, force of law is sort of brings in a different dimension, right? I I listened to that podcast. It's interesting. Um, I don't take the libertarian view that credentialing and licensure processes are really just a cartel arrangement to privilege people. The fact that we have modern medicine instead of folk medicine and quack medicine, which came before it, fundamentally has to do with the creation of medical organizations like the American Medical Association in the 1900s, um, sorry, in the 1800s, and the standardization of procedures and credentials so that people had to show that they had some education and then they had to stay up to date on findings. 
created some standards so that you could have uh, interactions between people. So professionalization is super important in the world of knowledge. It is just never going to be the case that you or I or someone off the street is going to figure out nuclear fusion. These are always going to be highly specialized fields that rely on experts and professionals. And that will mean there's going to be credentials. There's going to be middlemen saying, well, yeah, uh, you know, Chris, if you want a PhD and you want to teach, show us that you've done the work, write the dissertation. So yeah, uh, we need gatekeeping and we need credentials. Sometimes, I agree with your guest, sometimes that can be better done through certification than licensure. You know, like, I really don't think you need a lot of specialized knowledge to braid hair. And mm -hmm. I really think it should be legal to do that and that people should be encouraged by markets to show they have a certificate if they want to get a certificate without being stopped by the state. So state involvement gets trickier. It's especially tricky right now when you've got a lot of conservatives who are trying to use the state to impose standards on universities on what they can teach about human sexuality, critical race theory, and all of that. That's direct government intervention in the curriculum and in academic standards it is a clear threat to academic freedom and to the constitution of knowledge. So generally, I want to keep direct politics out of science, but I do want to have organizations and professionalism in science. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the issue of professionalism is super crucial. I, I agree with everything you said, say in the book about that and the need for standards and certification. And I'm not anti-credential. I think there's plenty of ways in which credentialism is out of control in certain areas and, and overused when it's not needed. But the general idea, I think, is super important. We've been talking at a general level, at a, at a social level about what the constitution of knowledge is and what supports it. But what advice do you have on an individual level for improving a person's truth-seeking abilities and compass? And, you know, and do you take your own advice? <laughs> well, I, I try. I'm certainly not unbiased, but I try to live the rules I preach. I like to think that I would not participate in a cancel campaign and that I, in fact, participate in trying to break one, that I would come to the assistance and support of someone who got canceled, even if I disagreed with them on the general principle that this is not the way we should run a society. And I certainly oppose disinformation and in my work, do everything I possibly can to fact check and make sure that that everything that I write and say is true. But but that said, it's really not up to me. It's It's about preserving the fundamental norms of the constitution of knowledge that dictate how we go about doing things like fact checking, editing, doing empirical research, going about the business of law. And people ask me, well, what can I do? And I learned, you know, I need to turn that question around. I was last year, I was at a, a, a conference and, you know, was talking about this and someone raised her hand and said, I'm a scholar of modern Chinese international relations. What can I do in my discipline to strengthen the constitution of knowledge? And I kind of looked at her and said, you're asking me? <laughs> I don't know anything about your discipline, but I promise you, if you sat down for, for one hour with a pad of paper, you could write down five or six ways that, that in your own life, in your own institution, you could think of ways to bolster the constitution of knowledge. Maybe it's by trying to make a point of recruiting people whose points of view are different from your own instead of the same, or encouraging other people on your faculty to do that. Maybe it is by, if you're in a university, advocating the adoption of the Chicago principles, which are important free speech principles. 
maybe it's as simple as supporting that that person who's up for a job whose views are just totally different from everyone else's. But I tell people, you're the one, each of us in the reality-based community who has a job that has to do with finding truth, each of us is in a position to figure out how in our environment we can defend the three key values of the Constitution of knowledge. And they are, in case you're wondering, number one, freedom of inquiry. That's the obvious one. We need to be able to have hard conversations and difficult topics and hear a lot of different voices. The second, discipline of fact. We need to do everything within our own power to keep ourselves and other people honest and go through the whole process of, of fact-checking and citing and everything else. And the third thing you need is diversity of viewpoint. If everyone in the room is agreeing, then core assumptions are not being challenged and we're going to make mistakes. And we can all find ways to do all of those things in our own environments. And that's what I tell people to go out and do. Don't ask me. One thing that I try to do to bolster my own diversity of viewpoints, because I'm only one person, so I can't I can't always be around different viewpoints, but I can try to shove other viewpoints in my head is I have a natural inclination to argue with things that I disagree with, sometimes combatively, and I've, I've tamped that down over the course of my life. And I try to redirect that impulse when I feel like arguing to instead just try to repeat back and just focus on understanding something I disagree with rather than argue to say, do I have your perspective right? I'm not saying you persuaded me, but is this your perspective? And it's a really helpful way to focus my combative energy when I'm disagreeing with That is a great people. practice. There are two things. So there's a lot of research going on now because of the, you know, the Thanksgiving uncle problem of people who believe crazy <laughs> stuff and people going, well, what do I do about this? You know, I've got a QAnon cousin and I don't even know how to talk to this person. So confronting people with contrary facts doesn't work for the most part. It makes people dig in deeper and even go even further into their bubble. Two things that really seem to make a difference. One, what you just said, repeat the argument. Say, so do I understand you? That lets the person know that they've been heard. And that means the first reaction they're getting from you is not combative, hey, you're wrong, hey, here are the facts. It's, okay, so let me make sure I'm, I'm hearing you. And that itself gets you a long way toward a better conversation. And then the second thing that is super effective, I got this from David Blankenhorn, who's a co-founder of Braver Angels, which is a national depolarizing group I'm involved in. They're doing awesome work. The best question to start a conversation like that is, tell me what it is in your life experience that led you to that view. Just say that again. Tell me what it is in your experience that led you to that view. And that has the effect of, of expressing personal interest in the human story. And it moves the conversation away from the realm of dueling facts and to the realm of narrative, understanding, personal contact. And that helps you get to the, the conversation to the point where people are now willing to hear each other's disagreements and encounter the actual ideas. So these are not panaceas, but they are two things that definitely help. It makes the conversation feel like two people on the same side looking for truth rather than dueling combatants in a courtroom. Yeah. And it's often hard, you know, if if you're a Jew talking to a Nazi, fortunately, that doesn't occur very much in America. But but if you're confronted with someone whose views you think are truly execrable, well, I understand if you don't want to have that conversation at all. Not everybody needs to. But I've learned I'm a journalist by profession. And, and the gift of journalism is it forces you to talk to all kinds of people. 
And again and again, you find they're not as crazy as you think. They're not as bigoted as you might think. They're single-minded. They're not even as wrong as you think. And, and so often I walk away from these conversations, you know, I never thought of it that way. There's something I can learn from this person. So if you approach people in that spirit, it, it not only leads to better conversations with them, it leads to more knowledge for you. And in that spirit, what do you think is the strongest or one of the strongest criticisms of your perspective in general that you bring forward in this book? People have asked me that, and it's such bad strategy to to make the other side's case better than they can. Um, <laughs> one of the points that comes up the most often is, is this a privileged viewpoint? You know, it's it's easy to talk in abstract terms about the constitution of knowledge, but aren't we talking about systems that have embedded privilege for certain classes of people, particularly white people, heterosexual people, whoever the case may be, men over centuries? And don't we have many examples of science that that actually further embedded these bad ideas? And the answer is yes, and it's a problem. And I'm a homosexual American. I am a direct victim of that problem because for decades, the psychiatric establishment, the medical establishment, science defined people like me as mentally ill, which was one of the major reasons that we were persecuted. That did not change until 1973 when I was 13 years old. So the world I grew up in was the world in, in which if I thought I was true to myself, I would be trundled off to, to psychiatric care and maybe worse. So that's an argument I most often hear. The answer to that argument is, yes, of course, liberal science, constitutional knowledge is about human beings and all their flaws. And if it's embedded in a flawed society, it too will be flawed. But again and again, the progress that we've seen toward civil rights and toward freedom and equality for minorities has come from the slow process of learning, of confronting the bad ideas, understanding why they're wrong, um, it was science itself that overturned the idea that gay people were mentally ill. It took too long to happen. The research was done in the late 40s and early 50s, and the change wasn't made till a generation later. And the idea that gay people are mentally ill was a change from the idea that they were wicked. Well, we had it all simultaneously. We were wicked, we were sinful, yet somehow we <laughs> were mentally win. ill, yet it was our fault that we were mentally ill. They didn't bother being, being coherent. But but yeah, and also the belief that we were subversives who were undermining the country and national security, and also, by the way, recruiting and seducing children, all of which was false. But I, I just ask people to remember, hate speech is a problem, but the problem is not the speech, it's the hate. And if you suppress the speech, if you suppress the confrontations of ideas that force the people with the bad ideas to try to defend them, then you suppress the most important tool that minorities have for equality, which is that we have truth on our side. We expose the lies of racism and homophobia and a bunch of other lies, and we're still doing it. And it's very easy for the concept of hate speech to get misused to target not hate speech, but speech you disagree with, or, or you know, the, the, the umbrella can get very wide. As happens all the time, yeah. Do you have any recommendations for other books or authors or works that you think would especially complement this one? Well, everyone should read Jonathan Haidt's book. On, coddling? Well, Coddling is good, but what's the name of the one before it? Righteous Mind? Moral Taste. Righteous, Righteous Mind. That's That's been a formative yeah, that's book a great for me. One. He really gets into how humans are irrational and why we need a constitution of knowledge. 
which is as hard as we may try, we are guided by impulses that were shaped by our tribal ancestors for a very different environment. So that's when I point people to, I think people should read Karl Popper. He's very readable. He's a great philosopher, but the structure of scientific revolutions and the open society and its enemies, great works, not only of philosophy, but social thinking from mid 20th century should be more widely read than they are. Structure then, is Popper or Kuhn? Oh, I'm sorry. Structure Scientific Revolutions is Kuhn. I'm thinking of uh, what's Popper's big book? The, you, you, you mentioned it too, the Open Society, right? Yeah, there's another one. Um, Structure Scientific Investigation. Anyway, he wrote a bunch of stuff. Similar a lot of the essays are very readable. I tell everyone to read Orwell. I'm sure you've had that recommendation come up. Politics in the English language. I feel like I read that a couple times a year. Yeah, and everyone should. And And lots of his essays. Orwell was someone who was deeply committed to the notion of truth as a guiding light for society, and perhaps perceived better than almost anyone, with the possible exception of Hannah Arendt, who is a contemporary of his, that once you're in a society where truth is manipulated, you're in a, in a world that is inimical to human flourishing and freedom and decency. And, and Orwell drives that point home again and again. If you want more recent stuff, there's a wonderful history of free speech by Jacob Mishangama. There's a wonderful book on hate speech and why it should not be banned by Nadine Strassen, who's a former ACLU president. And I think the title of the book is Hate Speech. That's great. I'm going to include all, links to all of these works and probably author pages on the show notes in addition to great. your own as well. Well, there's so many more. I feel bad about you know mentioning any when there's so many others that that, <laughs> that have inspired my own work. Well, I, I got a list and I'll also, I'll include a link to uh, Braver Angels, the organization, the anti-polarization yeah. organization you mentioned. That would be great. A lot of what people can do to defend the constitution of knowledge is to fight the polarization and the extreme partisanship, which is leading people down these rabbit holes of false belief. You know, once you hate the other side and believe the whole country depends on defeating them, then you're able to be manipulated and, and led to a lot of false beliefs. So fighting polarization is the other half, this, the opposite side of the coin of fighting propagandization. And what exactly does Braver Angels do? Workshops, debates, but they're what they're all about in, in their all their different formats is getting people together who are reds and blues, who disagree often profoundly, not trying to get them to agree or find common ground or to leave the room saying kumbaya, but to learn how to talk to each other and how to hear each other, how to reestablish the ties of communication so that they're able to leave the room and say, okay, maybe we can have a conversation now. The most common thing people say after a Braver Angels debate or Braver Angels workshop is, we are not as divided as we've been led to believe. And that is absolutely true. As divided as America is, polls and surveys consistently find that people overestimate how much the other side disagrees with them on actual issues by a factor of two. There's no much way. more agreement on things like abortion, gun control, immigration, and so forth than people understand. And being in the room with someone who's of the other party or who's a conservative, if you're a progressive and vice versa, and learning to hear that person allows us to better assess what our real differences are. Well, and when you're performing in the public space, it pays when you're showing off to your in-group to emphasize the most outrageous elements of your own viewpoint, as well as the most outrageous elements of other people's viewpoints. I, you know, I spoke to Jason Brennan, and he gives the example of being a sports fan that, you know, if you're watching the Patriots and you're a Patriots fan and the ref makes a call 
against your team, and it's obviously a good call, you can signal your loyalty even while signaling stupidity by screaming that it was a bad call. Obviously, it was a good call, but if you if you're yelling and throwing your hands up about it, you show the other Patriots fans, hey, you know, this guy's on our side. He's making a big stink, even though that was obviously a fair call. And I think people do that kind of thing in politics all the time. Oh, absolutely. A lot of what goes on in social media is not about conversation, of course. It's about expressing group solidarity by showing that you can you can outdo your friends in condemning Chris Kaufman as I don't know, whatever he is, uh, the kind of bad and evil person he is. This is this is not about connecting or disagreeing in a productive way. This is about posturing in order to increase our group status. And it's there's no point condemning it because it's a basic human impulse. It's it's what tribalism does. But it needs to be countered with incentives to do the opposite as well. And that's part of the work Braver Angels is doing. And and that's the work the Constitution of Knowledge does every day. It forces us into constructive, sometimes annoying, but constructive disagreement with people who have other points of view. And then it forces us towards some type of compromise in order to say that we've made knowledge. Are you working on any new or upcoming projects at the moment? Yeah, I just started a project on the growing rupture between uh, conservative Christians and liberal democracy, which I'm worried about because I'm I'm an atheistic homosexual Jew. So I'm very much an outsider to conservative Christianity, but I'm also someone who believes that our democratic order doesn't really function very well if people look to politics for spiritual guidance or if our religious institutions become politicized and and both are happening. And one of the big reasons for that is among conservative Christians, a lot of grievance, a lot of feeling the world is coming to an end. So I want to understand that better, what can be done about it, because I think if we can do a better job of separating religions from politics, then both sides will be better off. Well, I look forward to that. Thanks. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with you and your work? I have a website, jonathanrausch.com. I post some, though not all of my work there. And I've got a Twitter account, though post Elon Musk, I'm not there very much. Kind of lost interest in Twitter for the time being. And of course, you can go to Amazon, as I would certainly, or anywhere. Barnes & Noble, the bookstore of your choice. And you'll easily find my books. And of course, I hope you do. I'll include all of those links on the website. My guest today has been Jonathan Rausch, and his book, once again, is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.